Helena, Montana is the home of Benton Cemetery, a graveyard overlooking Carroll College. Wilted grass and dying trees personify the place's purpose, housing the dead. There's a tombstone planted under the shadow of a gnarled tree. It reads, Fern Marie Wilson. Her hair and eyes were the color of the ravens who now perch atop her grave. She was often seen wearing an ornate yellow dress, her only memento of her dead mother, Rosemary. After her mother's death, Fern was sent to live with her grandmother. She was a strict woman who worried that Fern would fall into her own daughter's mistakes and in turn forbid her from talking to the men working on the railroad for the town. Overcome by her grandmother's rules, Fern fell into a depression and thoughts of suicide filled her mind. One day, Fern walked into the general store and bought a vial of carbolic acid. She climbed the tree as she did every day after school, but on this day, she decided she couldn't take it anymore and drank the whole vial of poison, killing herself. To this day, children report sightings of Fern in her yellow dress, sitting in the only tree in Benton Cemetery, trying to coerce them to join her on her perch. Okay, wait a second. We've all heard stories like this one. Ghost stories or tall tales, whatever the case, these things feel larger than life. And the question we're asking today is what do these stories tell us about the past? But before we go any further, I'm Philip Russell. I'm Shira Kresh. I'm Evan McLonis. And I'm Ben Thorpe. Are there threads of truth in these kinds of stories? And what do they tell us about how the past stays with us? How it leaves us traces of its presence everywhere we go? are listening to the Looncast. 30 minutes outside of Helena, Montana is the ghost town of Elkhorn, a silver mining town that sprung up in 1872 and lasted 30 years before being abandoned. So is this it right here? Yeah, that's the town right here. We went up there to get a sense for what was left behind and what kinds of stories the empty buildings could tell us. When the price of silver fell over the time population of Elkhorn fell to what you see here today. As you walk up the main road, there are a few wooden buildings that tower over the rest. And the first one you'll probably notice is Fraternity Hall. It's this impressive building that, in its heyday, was probably used all the time. But once you walk in, there's just nothing. Style. Yeah, we just they go use the, that sign all over Montana. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. And when Phil says there's nothing here, he means it. This place is empty. Walking back down the main road, we came across this man, shirtless with a pair of ripped sweatshorts. He had the body of a retired surfer and a shaggy head of hair that screamed L.A. You call me Elkhorn John. He's an older guy who lives alone in this incredibly eccentric shack. The kind that you'd expect a crazy mountain man to live in. No judgments there. A three-legged dog guarded this crystal shop set up in the front yard, and that got us thinking, why? What was he doing here? People are just hungry for answers and want to know this and that, so I do a lot of that. I'm the self-appointed docent information officer. (laughs) Sometimes I guide people back to see, you know, if they want to go in the backcountry a little bit and pick rocks or whatever, just see stuff. So we asked him, what brought people back to Alcorn? It's a really good question concerning Elkhorn, because Elkhorn is pretty unique in the fact that it's a living ghost town again. Uh, that's what they call them when they're not really ghost towns. And 
the other interesting thing, it's not just random people coming in. There's nine of us full-timers. Out of that nine, there's uh, five that are from the original descendants. But even though this house over here, John the dentist from Helena, even though he doesn't live here full-time right now, they got, he's got his practice in Helena, He's connected also. So just because uh, it's almost everybody that lives here is connected to the mm. original people. Elkhorn John was born and raised in L.A., and as a surfer, he was having the time of his life living there. But for some reason, he was drawn to this house and the family history that came along with it. You know, I really, it was hard to do, too. I'd, I'd, mold, I'd just been in conflict for years over coming up here or staying down there, you know. But uh, now with, and we, and we were, my, my parents, were, I think, were the first ones to come back, mm. you know, my dad, and um, fix up the original house. They were the first, I believe. And then some of the others started. After John's family returned to Elkhorn, other families slowly began to come back, too. For them, the allure of familial history was too much to leave behind. You know, the land never left their families. Yeah, the whole thing of having a history here really makes me feel good. Elkhorn is a really concrete example of how history weaves its way through our lives. In Elkhorn, the family names have stuck around and begun to breathe new life into an old ghost town. Sometimes, though, our connections to the past aren't quite as obvious. It's, we were here, but now we're gone. We left, we left our names to turn you on. Those who know us know us well, and those who don't, Emotional support for this episode is provided by City Stay, a really neat and important nonprofit we learned about during our time in the Twin Cities. So City Stay basically flips the study abroad model on its head. So instead of going halfway across the world to study a new language or culture, you stay right here in your hometown and explore really your own backyard. And so what that looks like in Twin Cities terms is that we have a very vibrant Hmong, Somali, and Latino community. And students of all backgrounds um, go and spend a week, it's usually a week, um, living with a family in that community, in one of those communities. The idea here is that there's a lot of community mistrust in a lot of urban areas as well as social inequality. And our hope is that by further connecting our communities and informing ourselves about one another, we're able to reduce that mistrust as well as some of that inequality. If you happen to live in the Twin Cities, learn how to get involved either as a host family or as a student at mycitystay.org. But you don't have to live in the Twin Cities to be a part of it. City Stay is running a campaign on Indiegogo through the end of August, and they could use your help. In return, you'll feel great for supporting this awesome initiative, and all donations are tax-exempt. City Stay, sparking unlikely connections. Now, back to the show. In thinking about the way story and history interact with place and imagination, we approached Dr. Ellen Baumler. My name is Ellen Baumler. I'm the interpretive historian here at the Montana Historical Society. We talked to her about history and how for her it leaves tiny, almost indistinct traces in our lives, and that you have to be looking closely in order to see them at all. For Ellen, these traces began to appear in her home as marbles, something that hinted at a history she didn't quite know or understand. Uh, as we lived in the house, one day I had vacuumed my den. There was nobody else at home at the time. And 
I came back into the room and sitting in the middle of the floor was this really old marble. And it was just like sitting there and I thought, oh, did it fall out of the, the light fixture or roll out of the baseboards or what? You know, I thought it was kind of cool. And so I picked it up and I kind of put it in a, in a special place and thought it was kind of neat. And then we began to find these other marbles. And, you know, pretty soon we had a whole little handful of marbles. My daughter never played with marbles, and these were really old ones. But of different vintages, different times, different makes, you know. And I found them, I found one on the stairway after I had vacuumed. We found a couple of them in the basement where I know they weren't before. Out in the garden, in fact, recently one washed out of the gutter during a rainstorm. I was standing there, and it just plopped into the yard, you know. And so marbles often figure in my stories because I really think of those as little, little gifts from the past, kind of, and, and I call them spirit tailings. You know what mine tailings are? The no, piles of rocks that the miners sifted through and threw away, those are called mine tailings. Well, I call these spirit tailings because they're things that people have thrown away and forgotten about, and they often come into the present to remind you you know, that the past is always with you and always important. Ellen's thoughts on marbles brings up some interesting ideas. History has this weird way of making its presence known wherever we go. I like to imagine her story a lot like a connect-the-dots picture. They're like these little dots that cue us in on something that may have been, and they're just waiting for us to draw the lines. So when I was in high school, my brother and me and a couple of my friends decided to go check out the Packard plant in Detroit, Michigan. And you're looking at this building, and it's, it's giant, and, you know, every window looks like it's broken, and the outside's covered in graffiti. So we turn down the street, and we find a good spot next to a bunch of just empty, decrepit-looking houses, which, you know, looked like the best place to park our car, so you can probably guess what the, the rest of this place looked like. It's a sprawling collection of various-sized buildings, and... You'd know you're in the right place if you saw empty water towers perched on top of crumbling bricks and boarded up windows. When we were coming in, we saw a garage that was open that led into the, you know, the old factory. And we go around the corner and we see the, the garage door that we saw coming in and it's just gaping, dark, black, mysterious. So we hop up into this garage where trucks probably made deliveries back in the day and climbed into this giant, dark, abandoned factory in Detroit. A partially burnt mountain of vintage shoes stood right inside the open garage door. So we get inside and we find a hallway and it's lined with broken windows and graffiti and we're just walking down in and out of rooms. A lot of them are empty. But we get to one room and there's this makeshift shack in the corner of it with plywood and PVC pipe pointing out. He pictured the people that used this meth lab as violent, inebriated, stumbling scientists with mysterious stains on their lab coats. It was pretty creepy, so we don't want to see the people who put to use this meth lab. So we got out of that room and we found a stairwell and we got in there and the stairs in this building were so weird. They were like spiral stairs, but instead of a circle, it was like a triangle. So there was like three sets would make a, a triangle and they had no handrails and in the middle of these things was just a giant black hole because you know these things are empty and there's covered in graffiti and the stairs are crumbling so we walk up and um, we get to the floor above us and this floor was interesting because it was just 
the skeletons of old offices. And uh, what was interesting about that was like you could see at one point this building was used and made money and you could kind of tell looking at this but the purpose is gone obviously because no one has used it in so many years and then we we decided we wanted to check out a different portion of the building so we went to the opposite side of the roof which was actually pretty huge and went down a, a separate stairwell that we didn't before and we went down to like this the floor right under us so it must have been like the third floor or something and it was this like hallway very similar to the one we first walked in there was a room that some people had set up for paintball. Like they had like, boxes and the place was covered in paint. And I thought it was so interesting that people can still find a use for something so, you know, broken down and scary because you could, like the crystal, crystal meth lab. Someone was using it for that, but at the same time, someone's using it for, for recreation. So we went down and we found the hall that we came through in. We walked back down and found the garage of shoes and went back and got in the car and left and it's crazy because it's the building's still there and people are buying and it's switching hands and who knows what they're going to use it for but there's so many things that it was used for give it a meaning in a way because that's why we went to see it you know we wanted to see that piece of history and for me it kind of became history so it was just a really interesting experience and I see I feel like I got in touch with something that's not here anymore when I when I did that Evan's visit to the Packard plant got us thinking about how easy it can be to let our imaginations concoct stories about why things are the way they are or what may have happened in any given place Here's Ellen again, with a pretty wild story that we think embodies this idea. My own house is probably what got me started because we do have, I don't know if you would call it, we have residual energy to a pretty high degree in our house. And um, it's just something that taught me that if something happens to you in the present, if you look to the past, you can often explain why it happens. When we come up against the unexplainable, most of us fall back on science or religion, but Ellen tries to look through the lens of history to come to her own conclusions. Mm. And in my house, what, you know, what happens there is that um, we moved in there in 1988, so we've lived there for almost 30 years. And uh, first night I spent there, I you know, awakened and there was this um, very annoying static, like a staticky radio. And I thought my radio you know, had gotten messed up in the move and I reached over to turn it off, but it wasn't on. And so I get up and I'm looking everywhere and I couldn't find the source of this really annoying static. And I mean, at that point, I was really, really annoyed because it was middle of the night and I was tired. So I went back to bed and I lay there probably for about an hour and um, finally drifted back to sleep. And then I just sort of forgot about it the next morning. But then it happened two nights after that. And after it happened the third night, I get up in the morning and I said to my husband, you know, there's something in the house that's keeping me awake. And he looks at me and he goes, have you heard the radio too? For Ellen, the radio static became a part of her routine, a weird quirk of the house, so she let it fade into the back of her mind. Not long after moving into her new home, she became friends with the brother and sister who used to live there. So we had made friends with the brother and sister very elderly. He lived to be uh, 99, she lived to be 101. 
and they were well into their 80s, late 80s, when we first met them, and they came to visit us. Uh, absolutely loved our house. They would love to tell us stories about what it was like to grow up in the teens, you know, there. So anyway, maybe the second or third time they came to visit us, we always took them on a tour of the house and they'd tell us all this stuff. And we get to the top of the stairs upstairs and the guy turns to me and he goes, you see that room there? That bedroom? He said, you know, back in the 1910s, I had Helena's very first radio operation set up in that room. It took up the entire room. My mother hated it. People came from all over Helena just to hear my radio. He was an electrical engineer, inventor of industrial equipment, a very smart guy. Always had the first electrical appliances. He had the first electric car here in town. And, um, I, you know, I just, I really hesitated to tell him that we hear this thing <laughs> in the night. And I thought about it, I thought about it. I said, Art, you know, um, what was the uh, reception like on that radio? Oh, it was terrible, he said. Static, very staticky. So I told him, you know, sometimes we hear this radio in the night. And he said to me, you know, I'm not surprised. He said, we played that radio so often, its energy probably absorbed Okay, so the idea that the past affects our present isn't rocket science, but this idea that the supernatural can be explained in this way feels like a leap. So do we really think that that happened? You know, I don't think that happened, because things like that don't happen. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, I don't have a... I, 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 it's hard for me to believe that that actually happened, but um, what that experience led her to, be, to do and to believe is that... That in itself is real, I think. So whether or not she actually heard that static, or what that static is, what she thought it was, she, by going through that experience and by investigating, she was able to figure out something that actually did happen there. Yeah, and doesn't she say that too? She says like, "There's truth. The truth is in the investigation. That like, in in looking into these things and looking for the threads of truth in this story." If it leads you to something that, you know, to a better understanding of it, that's the point, right? That it gets you closer to the truth. And so telling these stories isn't, isn't bad, right? And so whether or not it's, you know, it's true in a factual, measurable way, I, I think kind of doesn't matter. It's about, does it get you closer to the truth of the story? I think every story like that has some little kernel and some little thread of truth. And the challenge for the historian is to find that thread of truth. Um, and that's, that's fine, you know, but lots of times it's not, um, it's, it's just not, uh, it's not a good idea to present them as true mm -hmm. when they're not. But that doesn't mean there isn't a thread of truth in there that somebody couldn't find. And to bring this all back around, that Fern story we told you in the beginning, that was based on a real story. She was 15. She was living in a boarding house down by the railroad tracks with her grandmother. Uh, her grandmother was always on her case about um, staying away from these men who were boarding at the boarding house because it was for railroad men. Apparently the grandfather blamed the grandmother, but Fern went to the um, drugstore and bought carbolic acid and, and killed herself. 
And it was horrible death, and all the description is, you know, in this inquest and stuff. And we looked into Fern's grave, but didn't feel like there was anything there. Yeah. Well, it looks like they, this is a new grave. This Oh, the original one is right there. But here's the thing. Ellen actually did tell us something else. She took a group of kids down to the grave and they saw something. About 10 minutes later, I kind of caught up with them and they were just sort of milling around in this really weird way and none of them were talking. They were just kind of like stupefied. So I said, what's the matter with you guys? And one of the boys said, some of the kids just saw her. They saw Fern. Looncast is produced and hosted by Ben Thorpe, Phil Russell, Shira Crush, and myself, Evan Michelonis. Hey guys, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to leave us a review on iTunes. You can do that on your iPhone or your iPad, or even on iTunes on your computer. All you have to do is search the Looncast on iTunes and leave us a review. I know it's probably annoying hearing this after every episode, but reviews really matter in getting exposure on iTunes. And plus, we want to hear what you guys have to say. What are we doing well? And what are we really screwing up on? Let us know. We care about your opinions. Music for this episode was provided by Alexandra Navarro, Boss Bass, Andrew Seistrup, and Happiness in Airplanes. Special thanks goes out to Ari and Lynn Kresh, Solace and Lisa McGalonis, John and Eileen Thorpe, Peggy and Jim Rosenfeld, Dora Subze, Megan McKnight, Alexandra Williams, Noah Tobes, Marissa Kelly, Stephen Jones, Ine Prakash, Emily Jan, Vita and Ludis Michelonis, Julie Knopp, and Chelsea Jagir. <laughs>